So tonight, the first thing I want to open up, and hopefully you got your Bibles or at least your Bible apps. I personally like to use Literal Word. If you guys don't know about that app, it is my favorite app. Uh, and yeah, I know, I know. Maybe it's from the years of teaching the youth. I am okay with a little bit of the digital stuff, but that's just fine. And I like it because it's really easy for me because if you follow along on our Facebook page or YouTube channel, I typically try to use that because it's very easy to get to the verses and it's an NASB, and I'm able to share those immediately with people online. But if you guys want to scroll or turn or whatever you want to do, you can go to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be starting there tonight on a study, and interestingly enough, hopefully what we can do tonight as I get going is I can, can not bury the lead so much yet about what I really want to talk about, but I want to get right into the Word and see so clearly what God's Word has to say about Jesus Christ our Lord, not only in the New Testament, the New Covenant, but also in the Old Covenant. And so I want to see what God's Word has to say about the Son, Jesus Christ, the Word, the Lagos, the living Word of God that we've been given. And so if you will go to Philippians, once again, chapter 2, I'm going to start on verse 5. And just for a little bit of background, when it comes to verse 5, when it comes to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, which we are going to read, um, many in the church in theology call this the Carmen Christi, or the hymn of Christ. And it is a very, very powerful hymn where many believe that although Paul wrote this book, right, Philippians, he wrote this letter to the church in Philippi. They believe that this part that he is, go, that I'm going to read from, that we will read together, that this part specifically was actually a very early creedal hymn of the early church. And so when we look back, and when a lot of times if I say the early church, I'm a lot of times referring to, over and over again, right, to maybe Irenaeus or Polycarp or some of the early church. But when I talk about the early church, I'm talking about right after death, burial, resurrection. And so when we see the Carmen Christi here, the hymn of Christ, you're going to notice something that right away in the early church, there is something over and over again that they are specific to about what they talk about when it comes to the person of Jesus Christ. And also, when we look at the hymn of Christ, when we look at this beautiful text that we're about to read, let's also recognize as we read it, even though I want to talk theologically, let's talk practically as well, because what is Paul saying to the church in Philippi? A, a church he is honoring. He is talking about, it's amazing if you read the first chapter, the things he has to say about this church. They're helping fund his ministry. They're helping fund ministry to churches that would have way more than what they have financially, and they're helping fund it. And Paul is very, very confident in the faith that the church in Philippi, that they had. He is extremely confident that they will continue the work that they had began because of their actions, because of the fruit they were bearing through Paul and through that ministry. And I love that. And then he says this in verse 5 of chapter, chapter 2. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. I mean, let's just stop right there and recognize there's going to be a practical teaching to be taught through this early hymn of the early, early church, we'll call. This is what it says in verse 6. Who, although he existed in the very form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. We have the hypostatic union, as we talk about in theology, of Christ being both God and man. And we have him emptying himself by taking on the form of a man. So immediately when we talk about the very earliest beliefs in the church and what they were trying to pass along to one another, one of the very first things they wanted you to know is first and foremost, there is a father and a son. Jesus existed eternally, but there is still a father. One of the things that comes against immediately is what we call Unitarianism or oneness, Pentecostalism or some of these other false teachings that would eventually come into the church. And so the church was coming against this immediately by way of creed here. And then it says in verse 8, being found in the appearance as a man, 
He humbled himself by becoming obedient to to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's almost like a crescendo here. He He died, but it's not just death. It's death on a cross, right? The cross, the crucifixion, it's where we get the words excruciating from, right? This horrible way of death. Not only did Jesus, our God and Savior, as, as, Titus, as the letter to Titus says, our God and Savior, not only did he become a man, not only did he die, but he died in excruciating death on a cross. That's what it's saying, and it's kind of building it up here. It says, for this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You have him coming and becoming a man, dying a death on a cross, and then what's, that going, what's going to happen? The exaltation. And I find it very interesting because you'll see, if, depending on where your Bible's at, maybe it, you see it in all caps. It says, every knee will bow. And that's because Paul is not just bringing up some new tradition. He is taking from Isaiah the 45th chapter. And one of the reasons I love Isaiah 45, 22, and 23 specifically is because these verses, not only quoted by Paul here, but these verses were the verses that were used to bring Charles Spurgeon actually to Christ. In fact, I won't go over his entire testimony because I want to teach on, some, on something tonight specific. But in, when it came to Charles Spurgeon, he felt as though he wasn't one of the chosen. He felt like he couldn't be saved. And so he was in misery, absolute misery. And one day, he actually went into a Methodist church, and the pastor was not there. There was a cobbler, and if you read Charles Spurgeon talk about his testimony, and he's known as the Prince of Preachers. Um, I mean, he's one of the most quoted men, I think, uh, there are. And he went to this cobbler and heard him speaking, and the cobbler looked right at him at his preaching. He says, man, you look miserable, you look horrible. I can't, you, you, you're, just, you're just miserable. And he says this verse, he says, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. And he told him to turn to him and be saved. He didn't even think that Christ had died for him, right? That's part of the problem when it comes to part, the L in the tulip, limiting the atonement, that Christ didn't really die for him. And so he didn't even think Christ died for him, but it was at that moment that he actually did come to Christ. Granted, he would take back some of those bad doctrines. But nonetheless, here is where it gets into the part that Paul actually quotes. I have sworn by myself, right? Because there's nothing, anything higher, right? I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back. That to me, every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance or confess, right? So we have the fulfillment of this is going to take place ultimately at Christ's return. And I love that because I think about the awesomeness of Jesus. I I hope that's a word. I think of the awesomeness of Jesus, and I really do. And specifically when I think about it, Philippians 2 is one that comes to my heart every single time. Because I think of Philippians 2, I think of Christ himself being so powerful, so magnificent, that even those who are going to burn forever, they still worship him. That's how awesome he is. That the most blasphemous, right? It doesn't matter if it was Christopher Hitchens or right now alive Richard Dawkins, and we hope that he turns from his wicked ways and comes to know Christ, or any famous atheist and blasphemer, they too will bow the knee, and that's how awesome my Jesus is. That's my God. That's the one I serve. Now, now flip over to me to Romans chapter, flip over with me to Romans the 10th chapter. And guys, these are very, when it comes to these texts, these texts are very elementary, right? These are, these, are, these are things that in the Christian faith, this is stuff that we should be reading. This is stuff that we should be meditating on. When someone asks, how must I be saved? I think Romans, the 10th chapter in Romans as a whole, but Romans, the 10th chapter is one that we should have in our hearts and mind. And I want to start in verse eight. And I love this, guys, because the New Testament, the New Covenant is not written in a vacuum. 
And one of the things, when it came to the early church, not the ones we were talking about right after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, but when it came to the early church, one of the ways they were always able to decipher that which was false doctrine, that which was maybe somebody wrote something and called it a gospel and so forth, one of the ways that they were knew right away, without a doubt, this never even gets a shot at being part of scripture, was the fact that it had a different God than the God of the Old Testament. That was something that Marcion, one of the most famous heretics uh, that, that battled against the early church, he came against and tried to separate because he wanted something new. Remember this, in Acts chapter 17, it was very common in the Grecian culture that they would just want something new. It didn't even matter about being right or being true. They just wanted something new. And Paul comes against that. And he actually brings it back, and I I don't want to get into all of that, but going against the Stoics and the Epicureans and then explaining to them very clearly that it wasn't just this deterministic fate that they might have believed in, right? And it wasn't just this deterministic fate where it was only the elite and maybe the emperors and so forth where their lives were fated and the rest of the people were not, but every single person after Adam and Eve, every single one of them, you have been created for one purpose and one purpose alone. It doesn't matter if you were born in 1920. It doesn't matter if you were born last week. It doesn't matter if you were born at the time of Jesus. You have been created for one purpose and Acts chapter 17 gives us that answer. It's to seek, grope, and find God. That is what you've been created for. And so he goes and he annihilates those arguments. But what it says before he does that is that they were always looking for something new. And this was not something that was uncommon there in the Grecian culture. And so instead of going back to the old covenant and recognizing that this is the same God, he has always been the same God, the one true God of Israel, they wanted something new. They wanted Jesus to be new. They didn't even want him to be a fleshly person, right? They just wanted him to be a spirit. And so now we're seeing this and we say, let's go back to the word of God and recognize that it's not like they were preaching some new God. They were explaining the things of the old covenant and making them known, okay? So let's go to to Romans chapter 10. We're gonna start at verse eight. It says, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we are preaching, That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scriptures say, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. Verse 13, whoever, call, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And by the way, if you guys know of the Watchtower Society and Jehovah's Witness, if you have one of their Bibles, the New Living Abomination uh, translation that they have, if you have one of their Bibles, it is actually a place here where it calls Jesus Jehovah. Because this is obviously referring to Jesus throughout. And it actually, in that verse, it says where where you see, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord, Yahweh will be saved. It says Jehovah right there. Why? Because it is a quote from the Old Testament, from Joel 2, 32. And it came about after whoever calls on the name of the Lord, Yahweh, the Tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H, The divine name of God, whoever calls on the name of the Lord, will be delivered or saved. And so this is once again Paul explaining neither Jew nor Greek. There is no difference. The same God is God over all and all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But he's explaining to them quite clearly that Jesus Christ is Yahweh. Jesus Christ is the God of the Old Testament. Quite clearly, like I said, these are early on attestations of what the church believes. And it's important to recognize this because if there is anything, and I think uh, Dr. Walter Martin, when he would define what a cult is, typically what he would define a cult as is that which denies Jesus' deity to some degree or another. And I would have to agree with that, typically. 
I would typically agree with that in some way. They mess up his deity one way or the other. And I just want to go over one more text to show you quite clearly that God is telling us in his word, in the new covenant, that the God of the old covenant, Yahweh, is Jesus. That Jesus is Yahweh. And it's one of my favorite things to do when it comes to the gospel of Mark. Because the very first verses of the Gospel of Mark actually explain that Jesus is Yahweh immediately. And for those who are into apologetics and those who know who Dr. Bart Ehrman is and so forth, there was a theory that he came up with that a lot of Muslims had attached themselves to. And that basically was, in fact, I heard Dr. Shabir Ali, who's the most famous Muslim apologist probably in the world, and I heard him specifically use this argument, and it's the developing deity of Christ. And that basically what he says is that you can't get around it. In John's gospel, the very first verse, right? In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. And we see that the word become flesh, right? It's very, very clear that Jesus is God. But he says it, it was a developing theory that it, when it's in the gospel of Mark, he's not really God in the gospel of Mark. The problem is, is I believe from a Jewish perspective, reading the Gospel of Mark, you cannot get around what, what I believe Peter is saying through Mark writing it, that Jesus is Yahweh. And we can't get around it when we go to Mark chapter 1. As I said, it's not hard to find when we're just going to the first couple of verses. And I know the ladies right now, I think, are going through Mark in one of the, one of the studies. Just awesome. I, I love the Gospel of Mark. I've fallen, uh, I guess, really in love with it. Uh, I've, I've just been, it's more to the point, you know, and I'm more like that. So it, it, I guess it just matches my personality. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Quoting Isaiah 40, verse 3, Clear the way of the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. When John the Baptist came, he was clearly, clearly making a path for Yahweh to come. That's who he was making a path for. He was a voice crying out in the wilderness, make way, make straight the path for Yahweh. And that's because God was going to become a man in the person of Jesus Christ. There's no doubt about it. Just over and over again in the scriptures. Not only Jesus himself declaring that he himself is God over and over and over again in the gospel of John. You'll see it uh, starting in chapter 8 really all the way through chapter 10. Or some of the most powerful, all the I am statements and so forth. John eight fifty eight before Abraham was, ego I me, pointing back to the Exodus, pointing back to Yahweh, saying I am that I am. The I am statements of Isaiah over and over again. All of these things, we see it and understand it. So it's important. The deity of Christ was important to the gospel writers. The deity of Christ was important to the early church. The deity of Christ was important to the early, early church. The deity of Christ was really, really important, right? In Galatians 2.20, it's one of my favorite summaries, I think, in terms of us and how we should think and how we should live. It's a text that we should all write on our hearts. And, it, and it's something that has impacted me. I think about this text while driving. I think about it while jogging. I don't do that much, too much, but I still think about it. And I think about this text because it should summarize our life. In Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. The crucifixion of Christ is central to the Christian faith. The deity of Christ is central to the Christian faith. These are central issues where if somebody deviates from them, we do not call them a brother. They are not one of us in terms of being part of the saints with the gospel that was once and for all delivered unto us. And so we need to take these texts and realize they were written for a purpose. And I love Galatians chapter 2. And if I keep getting into the context, I'm not going to get anywhere. But if you go to Galatians chapter 1 and chapter 2, it's, two, it's one of my favorite things to go through. Because you see in chapter 1, Paul is describing about how he is an apostle. He's, he's approving the apostleship. He's explaining something because the churches in Galatia in that area 
had been swooned. Somebody had came after Paul had given them the gospel message and they had basically taken on a new gospel message, what we call plus religion. So he said, yes, have faith in Jesus Christ and just let me add some circumcision to it and now you have the cherry on top and now you can be saved. Oh, that's not that serious, right? Well, Paul tells them, you know what? Just, you know, you're severed from Christ. I think that's a pretty big deal. He says, if some angel even comes with another gospel, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. He should have no part with us. He's not one of our brothers. Because it's very, very clear that you're saved by grace through faith. And so Paul is making that clear that if somebody adds to this, it's no gospel message at all. And to approve this gospel message that he's talking about, he points to an an appeal to authority, really. He appeals to to the very disciples, not only himself as an apostle, but the disciples of Jesus Christ. He talks about going to James, going to Peter specifically first, and meeting with them. He even talks about how they actually had a struggle with believing that he was saved. And if you guys remember Paul's story, right? Paul is out having Christians killed. And then all of a sudden, yeah, well, I'm a believer. They probably thought, well, that's a pretty good trick, bud, but not going to fall for it, right? So it took quite a few years before Paul gets acceptance, And then he does gain acceptance and then he goes back to them, preaches the gospel back to them and basically says, the the Greek word I believe is where we get the term history, goes through the history, the curriculum to understand whether or not he's preaching a right gospel and where he's off. And he says they added nothing to his gospel message, the disciples, because what he was preaching while he was away from them for many, many years preaching was right. That Jesus Christ died, was buried and rose again. And he, was, and he was preaching that. And while he was preaching that, he was making sure, guess what? I was doing it right. And then it's so interesting. I love this story because you think about this. Paul appeals to them and says, you can trust the message that I'm telling you as Paul, an apostle called by God. You can trust this message because, look, even the disciples would preach you this exact message. They would tell you this. But then he even tells of another story in that same story. And when he tells that story, he talks about specifically Peter saying stood, he stood condemned because he was playing the hypocrite. That he would be hanging out with Gentiles, but then when Jews come, he would ditch the Gentiles and act like he has nothing to do with them. And Paul says, he stood condemned, so I rebuked him to his face. You think about that. First he appeals to him to say, hey, the gospel I'm preaching is true. And then he says, I rebuked him to his face. And these are the words we just read was the end of that rebuke when you go through it. It's really interesting that while he's, re- he's, rebu- sorry, while he's rebuking Peter, these are the words that come out. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I'll quote 1 Corinthians 15 real quick here. It says, now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, and which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received. Once again, when we talk about the things which Paul already received, this is a early, early letter. Even skeptics who do not believe in the authority of Scripture or anything that we believe would say, this is, we know this is from Paul, we know this is early. But what's crazier is so early after the death of Jesus Christ, after the resurrection, that even Paul says, I, I, didn't, I didn't come up with this. This isn't mine. I received it. Someone shared this with Paul. Once again, I, deliver, I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, Then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to over 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. But some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, to the one of untimely born, he appeared to me also. Now, I read all these texts to you. I say all these things because I believe wholeheartedly that these are those texts. These are those creedal statements that we as believers all have to have. 
In fact, when we think about the earliest creeds in the Christian church, they actually were told by one of the early church fathers, were told specifically one of the reasons they made these creeds is because not everyone would have access to the scrolls and to the texts of scripture. Even though they were doing everything they could to make that possible, he wanted to make sure anyone who got baptized knew what you were getting baptized into, knew All of these things. And so when you look at those early creeds of the church, you'll see over and over again, they display death, deity, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those core documents, those core values, those core things that we have to believe in order to be saved. And all of them pointed back, once again, to the old covenant and brought them back. Even there, did you not read that? Not only... In the scriptures, does it come to his death, but his resurrection too, according to the scriptures. He points back once again that this is the same God. And you see, I say all that as a half hour intro because tonight uh, in some places and then tomorrow morning is actually the end of Ramadan for Muslims. And for the last month, uh, we have been teaching in a discipleship, discipleship group I, I do, we've been teaching through the doctrines of Islam and what they believe. Because one of the things I want everyone to know is how to share the gospel with everybody, right? I want to be all things to all people. And I want to make sure I know what they're celebrating and so forth. And the night before Ramadan, I actually texted one of my Muslim friends and I said, hey, just so you know, it's, you know, I know it's Ramadan starting tonight, and I want to let you know I'll be reading through the Quran again uh, during this Ramadan, um, and I'd love to talk with you about it after it's over, you know. He's like, yeah, yeah, that'd be great, you know, and I was like, here's some things that I have and, and so forth, and um, I've done that the last two years, and actually one of the cool things was uh, Dr. Gordon Nickel he came out with a Quran with Christian commentary. It's not very polemical, like it doesn't have a lot of arguments for or against and so forth, but what it does is just give you an understanding of what they're trying to convey. And if you've never actually opened up a Quran, which I mean, how many people here have actually opened up and read a Quran? One, two, three, yeah, about five people. I mean, and, and it's not very common, right? Uh, it's not like, oh, I want my devotional, you know, let's see what Allah has to say, right? I mean, and not to mention, it is very, very difficult to read. Um, especially if you don't know Arabic. No, I don't know Arabic. I'm just kidding. That's why I have English translations, right? Um, But it is very, very difficult to read because if you know anything about the Quran, even at an elementary level, you'll know that it's not in chronological order whatsoever. In fact, after the first prayer, it's really kind of based on size after that. And when it comes to the context, a lot of times, you have no idea. I mean, honestly, no idea. And even some of the commentators of the Quran, who uh, it's called the Tafsir, even some of them have no idea what, what is really being said. Uh, they throw out some guesses and, and so forth, but they, they really don't know. And you'll, you'll read an entire chapter and it will say they, them, and they never says who they and them are, right? It, it'd fail an elementary level class. Um, but one of the things is, in being all things to all people, I like to make sure I actually know what I'm talking about. I like to study it. And you would be very surprised by how open somebody will be simply because I explain to them, I have read through the Quran. Now, after I bring my arguments, they say, well, did you read it in Arabic? And I'm like, well, do you understand Arabic? No, but, you know. And you're like, okay, but I'm giving you the, the you know, the, the commentators and so forth. But for most people don't even know what Ramadan is. Um, They have no idea what they're celebrating and so forth. So I just wanted to give a little bit of an understanding of what Ramadan is. Ramadan actually has to do with what is called the night of power. And what the night of power is, is Muhammad was born in 570 AD. And this is according to their sources, right? That's this is where I'm going to their sources. So Muhammad was born in about 570 AD. And he was actually an orphan. And in fact, when you read some of the first chapters chronologically, I have a chronological list for the Quran. Uh, When you read some of those first chapters, it'll mention taking care of the orphan. And most commentators actually believe it's talking about him uh, because he was an orphan. And he was supposedly with his grandfather and his uncle. And his grandfather died when he was eight. And then as he was a young man growing up in Mecca, he actually found uh, the eyes of 
a much older uh, woman who actually was a successful businesswoman by the name of Khadijah. And she asked him to marry her, and he said yes. But one of the things, supposedly, that bothered, um, that bothered Muhammad was that there was so much paganism around. So he eventually would go up and take these times away, specifically go up into the caves of Mecca and spend time there. And this one night, and this is what they celebrate on the start of Ramadan, this is what they celebrate, the night of power. Supposedly, an angel came and squeezed him and told him to recite. And he didn't listen, so he squeezed again, tighter, recite. And then a third time, finally, recite, and he did. And according to Muslims, that was the angel, they call it Jibreel, or the angel Gabriel. Now, Muhammad actually thought he was being possessed by what they called jinn and what we would call demons. Um, in fact, he wanted to throw himself off of a cliff because of it. He tried to commit suicide because of it. Um, but nonetheless, over the course of the next 22 years, he would be given these visitations over and over again, and then eventually, um, and, and given just piecemeal what the Quran is today. And what he was given over those, those 22 years before his death in 632 is the mixed mangled mesh that we have today as the Quran, supposedly. Now, there's a lot of problems with that, and I could talk about the transmission, but um, I'm only going to talk about that for a second so you guys have a good understanding of what they believe about the text. When it comes to the text of the Quran, Muslims believe that right now the 114 chapters that they have right now are on a tablet next to Allah in heaven, and they're eternal. Like we would say, and this is a good apologetic if you're ever sharing the gospel with a Muslim who said, how can Jesus die? How can God die? And like I said, I believe in Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, it's some of our best verses in terms of sharing the gospel with people. And one of the things it says, not only to keep yourselves in prayer, devoting yourselves to prayer, but one of the things it says to us specifically is that we should make sure that we speak with grace as though seasoned with salt so that we should know how to answer each person. So we want to be able to answer somebody appropriately. So while I wouldn't use this argument with an atheist, I would use this argument with a Muslim and meeting them right where they're at. And I did use this recently when we were in Texas and I was sharing with two Muslims. And basically the argument is they say that the Quran is eternal. I asked them, do you believe the Quran is eternal? And they would say yes. By the way, wasn't believed in the early Islamic history. But nonetheless, they believe it today. And so they believe that the Quran is eternal, and I will say to them, so if I take a Quran and I burn it, is it no longer eternal? And they say, no, that's ridiculous. I was like, so when God becomes a man and he dies here as the person of Jesus Christ, is it no longer eternal? Is he no longer eternal? And they go, okay, I get it. And they understand. And that, I, I think that's a really good argument to use for a Muslim. That's not for everybody. But, but nonetheless, that's what they believe about the Quran. Now, the, the transmission of the Quran, according to their early sources, uh, and this is according to Sahih al-Bukhari, um, and that is a hadith that is accepted by almost every single Muslim on the planet. There's very little Quran-only Muslims. Uh, they need this as kind of a commentary to explain to them what's going on in the Quran. And in Sahih al-Bukhari, that's where we get all of our understanding. And this is written in the 800s, so a couple hundred years after Muhammad existed. And it tells us how we got the Quran. And if I can summarize it best I can, basically what happened was Muhammad died in 632, and for the next two years, Abu Bakr becomes the caliph, the leader of Islam. And he's a military leader, and what takes place is Abu Bakr realizes, and it's a kind of a funny word, but at the battle of Yamama, a bunch of the greatest reciters die. Don't, don't laugh, come on. I've taught youth group for a lot of years, all right? At the battle of Yamama, uh, a number of the best reciters die. So Abu Bakr commissions Zayd ibn Tabit, the secretary of, of Muhammad, commissions him, we better write this stuff down or we're going to lose it. And he doesn't want to write it down. Zayd ibn Tabit, who was the secretary of Muhammad, says, I don't want to do this. Not even Muhammad did this. And then he eventually goes, oh, okay, I guess I should. And so then he, he basically takes it. He writes it down. The next, the next caliph, uh, Umar, comes as well. And Umar's daughter 
actually takes what we know, and this is only Islamic, their, their, their narrative, okay? That Umar's daughter, Hafsa, actually takes that Quran and hides it under her bed for like a decade. And that eventually the next caliph, Uthman, takes it and says, we need to commission this out to nine different provinces. And so they copy the 114 version chapter of the Quran. They send it out to the provinces. And that is the version that they believe they have today. In fact, to get you an understanding, if I told you while I'm reading this, hey, can you turn to page 1348, right? Most of you'd be like, what are you talking about, right? Well, uh, I'm reading Romans chapter 10. It should be on your, in your Bible on page 1348. No, that's not the case, right? We have different, different versions and so forth. Even this, you know, different pages, different font sizes and all that. When it comes to the Quran, they're so serious about this that they have a 1924 or 23 Egyptian model that they go off of, and they believe nothing has changed from that. Now, that has been refuted and, and so forth and has really been run amok when it comes to any historical data on that. And by the way, that version I just told you about, what's called the Hafs, uh, which is their standardized version, uh, there's not one copy of that text in the world. And in fact, most of the areas where it supposedly went to have been Muslim run forever and they still don't have a single copy of it. Tell me how that makes sense with how they revere their Quran and how that makes sense at all when it comes to the, the, you know, the transmission of the text. But nonetheless, what do they believe? And here's the thing. For us, we are here on a Bible study on a Wednesday night and hopefully, you know, we're digging into the word. We're trying to say, God, not that the worst question ever asked at a Bible study, what does that text mean to you, right? That's like the worst question you could possibly ask. But what does God mean when he said this, right? What does God mean to us? What is he trying to convey, right? That's the difference between exegesis, exegeting, take out, so we can understand, versus eisegeting, right? And putting in something into the text. It's one of the most important things. If you ask the right questions at a Bible study, that's how you grow. And for us, we want to know, God, what are you saying in your word? Open my eyes and may behold wonderful things from your word. That's a prayer. That's a psalmist prayer from Psalm 119. I want to know things from God's word. I want to reveal yourself more in your word to me so I can know it. That's not what Muslims do. They're just supposed to recite. And it's entirely different. And the thing is, is this makes everything different in terms of their faith and what they believe. That doesn't mean they aren't sincere. Muslims, a lot of times, in terms of how much they memorize and so forth, some of the kids will have the entire Quran memorized. It's about 306 pages, um, if it, it's standardized text. Um, it's about 306 pages, if you were just reading it. And many of them will have the entire thing memorized without knowing even what a word means, but have it memorized. I'll tell you one thing. I don't like to be outdone by Muslims. I, I, I want to make sure my kids know the word. And I get convicted by that all the time. I'm like, they're doing this for a lie. I have the truth. I want to make sure that I'm convicted enough to do something about it, right? Amen? And so what do they believe? What do they, what do they teach and, and so forth? And a lot of what Islam teaches is what we call an appeal to authority. So instead of actually having an understanding or, or, or you know, caring about what the Quran actually says, most of, if you share the gospel, one of the coolest things, one of the reasons I love sharing the gospel with Muslims is because they'll actually talk to you. I mean, most people here in Southern California, if you start a conversation with them on the side of the street, you know, a lot of times they don't want anything to do with you. They don't want to have a conversation. I have found the exact opposite with Muslims. They'll usually be really quick, and they're not quick as much to talk about Islam except for the beauty of Islam and things like that and platitudes and, and things like that. But they are ready with polemics against the Christian faith. They're ready for argumentation against the Christian faith. And you know one of the reasons for that is when you read the Quran and you read the text where it speaks about Jesus, the Jesus they have in the Quran, which is named Isa, is really an argument. It's not a person. When we read the Gospels, Jesus is a person. You can't get around it. These are biographies written about a person, the greatest person who ever lived. You can't get around who he is. When you read the Quran and see the things they say about Jesus, not only are some of them just nonsense. I mean, you know, he's as a, as a kid talking out of the womb. He's making clay pigeons. 
fly away and so forth. He's a magician, pretty much, which they stole from Gnosticism, but I don't have enough time to talk about that. Um, but you just see this. This is, a, this is not a person. This is just an argument. And most of the Quran is that way. This isn't, I'm coming for comfort to the word of God and saying, God, I, I, I need you. I, I, I'm, I'm having a struggle with something. And I go to his word and I find comfort in his word over and over again. This is t- entirely different. And this is why I feel absolutely horrible for Muslims. I love my Muslim neighbor and I hate when I find out about their religion. And the more I find out, the more sad I get about it. And the more I want to do something about it, the more I want to share with them, the more I want to open up that Quran and say, why does it say this? Why does it say that? And I want to go through a couple of texts and I am seeing the time and there's no way I could do what I want to do. But um, I, want to, I want to talk about a few different ways that we can share with them. Because I think ultimately that should be our goal. And one of the things that I have found and in doing the study with my discipleship group, one of the things that they have said to me as well is that they realize when they juxtapose, when they look at Christianity, when they look at the Christian faith, when they look at the Bible, when they look at Jesus, and they put it alongside Islam, and they actually do a deep dive into what Islam teaches, they really magnifies how awesome our God is. It really, really does. And the reason why I started with the Carmen Christi, the hymn of Christ, the reason why I started with Romans chapter 10, the reason why I started with Mark chapter 1, all of these things is to show quite clearly that the entire Christian faith, the only thing, if anything that it is, is the death, deity, and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. And the thing is, is if you shared and talked and opened up a conversation with a Muslim, they would say, we don't have a lot of differences. We believe in Jesus. In fact, peace be upon him. They will tell you right then and there that we, we've talked about him. We believe his virgin birth. We believe he is a prophet. We even believe he's Messiah. They mean something different, but they, say, they will say that. They just think it means anointed by oil. But nonetheless, they will say those things. So how do you answer them? You know, if someone's like, well, Chad, I, I believe that you're a great guy and, and I, I believe this about you, everything you've said. I just don't think you have a wife and kids. Like, what are you talking about? I do have a wife and kids. Eh, we believe the same thing. It's just the little wife and kid thing. It's no big deal. Right? That'd be absolutely ridiculous. And, and so we need to look at these things and say our entire faith, everything that we believe in is wrapped up in what the gospels say, what the disciples say. And I wanted to go through the Quranic dilemma, but I, I don't have enough time, and I'd rather talk about God himself and his word. Um, because one of the things, and we've, we've done, I've, now, I've done two interviews with uh, a couple of experts in Islam. One of them is Dr. Gordon Nickel, and the other is Dr. David Wood. I also interviewed Dr. Jay Smith as well, but I haven't brought those two interviews out yet. And all of them talk about what's called the Quranic Dilemma. And, and I'll, I'll summarize it as best as I can. Uh, and if you want afterwards, if you're like, hey, I really want to share with Muslims, I actually have the paper. I can send, even send you a document. I have all the Quranic text in order. So you can kind of take this argument and go with it. Um, but basi- in the mo- most basic way I can explain it is the Quran affirms the, the preservation and the inspiration of the Bible. Without a doubt. It, it does. Uh, and like I said, Dr. Gordon Nickel wrote a book called The Gentle Answer to the Muslim Accusation of Biblical Falsification. If you could say that 10 times fast, you'd probably convert a Muslim. Uh, But it's an excellent, excellent book. It's thorough, and it really is the scholarly work behind what David Wood calls the the Quranic Dilemma. Because the problem is, is the Quran is very clear over and over again that Allah gave the Bible to the Christians. And in fact, it says you can find Muhammad. If you don't believe it, you can find Muhammad in the scriptures. Now, Muhammad is in the 7th century. Obviously, we have manuscripts and everything from way earlier than that concerning what the Christians had in terms of their Bible. And nowhere in the Quran does it say that the Bible has been corrupted, ever. It never says that a single time. It only affirms over and over and over again. And so we can take them back to the Scripture and say, it's very clear this is what the Bible says. So that does create create a big dilemma because the Bible actually specifically, and I didn't believe this before, but the Bible specifically does have Muhammad in it. 
And they have always argued that Muhammad is in the Bible. And they would argue that he's in uh, John chapter 16. We would say that's the Holy Spirit, obviously, especially when it says he is with you and he will be in you. I don't know how on earth Muhammad, before he was born, got into the apostles. But nonetheless, um, that, he's not there. But I want to show you where he is. And it's actually in 1 John chapter 2. I think it mentions him almost uh, specifically. In 1 John, the second chapter. And this is one of my favorite chapters. And I'm using this in the same way that I've seen Pastor Joe use this text. And it, uh, it's not, I guess, it's not exactly what uh, they might think when they say that uh, Muhammad is in the Bible, but it is. I think it specifically talks about him. In 1 John chapter 2, starting at verse 18, it says, Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist, singular, is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were never really of us, for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are not of us. That's speaking of Antichrist, right? It's not speaking about somebody who actually is a part of the fellowship, actually does have the Holy Spirit, as it says in Hebrews chapter 6. This is about people that literally come in. It'd be like inviting Mormons in, right? And they came and tried to preach another doctrine, and they left. And then guess what? Everybody goes, oh, they went out from us. They were never part of our fellowship. They never actually had the Holy Spirit. This isn't a universal declaration over every single person that ever existed that turns from the faith. Verse 20, it says, But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know, I have, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. So yeah, he's Antichrist. He's right there, First John chapter 2. Anyone who denies the Father and the Son, he's one of the many Antichrists. And we have to recognize that and love people enough to share with them the truth. And I love that text, and I'll, I'll tell the story for Joe, because I remember it better than he does. Um, but we... Actually, when, uh, when Holly and I were first courting, we actually went out and we did a mission trip. And Jojo and I, uh, little Josiah, by the way, uh, was very little at the time. But me and him shared a lot of beds together throughout uh, Europe, sharing the gospel. And one time we were in Germany. And in Germany, at this place we were staying, the lobby, for some reason, actually shuts down. I, wasn't, I was used to, you know, the Holiday Inns and so forth in the United States. So the lobby actually shuts down, and they actually lock their front door. So if you have an early taxi, let's say, to get onto a train, um, well, the taxi uh, is going to knock, and you're going to be in your room. And that happened to us. Not that it's not uncommon for Joe and Lisa and everyone to miss their trains or planes and automobiles, but... Uh, but this is a time where I would say, not really your fault this time. Um, and basically, the taxi that was supposed to take us to the train so we could go over to Italy, it was going to be a four-hour train ride, uh, basically, we never got to it. And basically, what we would get was like a family unit. And so they would have like these little openings, and you'd go in, and you shut the door, and you kind of have your area to hang out. And you can walk and go get, you know, drinks, soft drinks and so forth, and then bring them back and, and hang out in your room together as like a family unit. And um, because we missed our train, we were going to have a friendly visitor inside of that unit. And so that's what happened. So we get in this train ride, and pops in uh, this guy. And... Obviously, I do believe in divine appointments, and I believe this one specifically was. And this poor guy was going to be stuck in a train ride for four hours. And he was actually from Italy, and he was coming back home to see his family. Uh, his wife was from Indonesia, I believe, and, or she was Indonesian. I can't remember if she was actually from Indonesia or not, but either way. Um, he had actually converted to Islam. Um, he was a Catholic growing up, and in fact, he told us his story. And the night before, Holly and I were actually reading through Deuteronomy, and um, you'll see why I, I say that. 
because this same man was telling us his story that when he was a young man, he got addicted to heroin. And he said he was about to die. He was not going to live much longer. And he said one night he looked in the mirror and Jesus came and spoke to him. And he said, I set life and death before you. Choose life. And the guy said, I literally stopped heroin that day and never did it again. So he went from that taking place to where he said, you know what? I need to give this up. And by the way, anyone who's ever had to deal with somebody who's on heroin trying to get off it, that's not an easy one to get off. In fact, a lot of my friends have died on that stuff. And so just wow to hear this story and to say, man, you had that miraculous event take place and you still decided that you had to marry a Muslim woman so you had to convert to Islam. And so now he's stuck in a train with us after this all happening, I'm like, man, if he doesn't come to Christ, it's going to be a problem, right? Uh, this is the, all of these conversations, all these things are going to be echoing in eternity all the times he missed, you know. And so he's stuck in that train, and we're going over Islam and Christianity and so forth. And Joe takes him to this text, and he says, listen, he's like, I, I want to paint a picture for you. Imagine, for me, I'm a father. I go to my children And I say, children, I am going away on a journey. I am coming back, but I am going away on a journey. Look at my face. Don't forget this face. This is what I look like. And by the way, this is exactly what a man who's going to come and tell you that he is your father. This is what he looks like, and this is what he's going to say. Don't let him into the house. Don't let him into the house. And the father goes to his journey, and he comes back, and he looks, and guess what? He's in there playing with his children. The enemy's in there playing with his children. How do you think that father would feel? He said, this is exactly what has happened. Over 600 years before Muhammad ever stepped on the scene, God made it very clear over and over not only who he is, as we've read all these texts already this morning, or this morning, it's not Sunday. See, I'm all messed up. Um, As we've read all these texts, but also what the enemy will look like. In fact, what he will say Do not fall for it. It's heartbreaking. And one of the saddest things, and if you know anything about uh, the salvation in Islam, I was going to go over the five pillars and stuff, but some of that's just informational. And you guys could find that on Google. Um, I I mean, you really can. But one of the saddest things in Islam is their version of salvation. And it's bad enough that it's a works based salvation. We could talk about that. But one of the worst parts is there is no security in Islam. In fact, in Surah 46.9, it says, Say, I am not something unprecedented among the messengers, and I do not know what will be done to me or to you. One of the things I do like to say when I talk to Muslims is, Are you saved? Are you going to get into paradise? And a lot of times they'll say yes at first. It's almost like asking somebody if they're a good person. A lot of times I say yes, and I say, wait, Muhammad didn't even know that. How can you know that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is not something small. In fact, I, as I mentioned, Sahih al-Bukhari, right? This is one of the foremost when it comes to accepted teachers, accepted teachings and sayings of the prophet. This is something that if you quote it, it's, it's pretty much as good as quoting the Quran. I mean, it really is. It says this. Whenever a strong wind blew, anxiety appeared on the face of the prophet, fearing that the wind might be a sign of Allah's wrath. It says again, if a prophet saw a cloud in the sky, he would walk in to and fro in agitation, go out and come in, and the color of his face would change, and it would rain as if he was perplexed. And the sun eclipsed, and the prophet got up, being afraid that it might be the hour, the day of judgment. He went to the mosque and offered a prayer in the longest chayim, bowing in prostration that I had ever seen him doing. These signs which Allah sends do not occur because of the life or death of somebody, but Allah makes his worshipers afraid by them. So when you see any thereof, proceed to remember Allah, invoke him, and ask for his forgiveness. Over and over again, there are texts like this speaking about the fact that even Muhammad was afraid of not getting in. In fact, I mentioned Abu Bakr, the first caliph, 
he, there's actually a text where it says that he could have one foot in paradise and God still drag him out to take him into hell. This is a horrible offering. This is the opposite of Christianity over and over and over again. In 1 John chapter 5, I've already quoted 1 John multiple times, but in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, he actually tells us why he wrote the letter. Interesting enough, John also tells us in, in the Gospel of John why he wrote that. He says that you would believe and have life in his name. That's why the Gospel of John was wrote. If you ever written, if you ever wonder why was the Gospel of John written, it's so you may believe and have life in his name. If you ever want to know why 1 John was written, he tells you again, I have written this that you may know you have eternal life. He wrote one for our salvation. God used John to write that gospel for our salvation. And then he wrote this one in 1 John for our assurance of salvation. This is what we have in Jesus Christ. 2 Peter chapter 1 actually calls us quite clearly after going through the divine attributes that God gives to us all things concerning life and godliness. He gives to us everything for us pertaining to life and godliness in the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit in us, he then says this, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. It is the duty of the believer to make our calling and election sure. It is the duty of the believer to test your faith to see if you're in it, 2 Corinthians chapter 13. These are things that we are supposed to be doing in our walks with Christ, but we have assurance not on the basis of us being really good. We have assurance on the basis of Jesus being really good. We have assurance on the basis of clinging unto him. One thing I like to say, especially when we look at Romans, the 11th chapter, concerning those who will be broken off, concerning those that were a part of the tree and that are broken off. And I know that's concerning Israel, but it also mentions Gentiles. It also warns Gentiles of being broken off if they become haughty, if they become prideful and so forth. But the fact is, is that you are there by your faith. How do you abide? You abide by faith. And God produces those good works into those who are obedient. We are basically, if you are in a sin lifestyle, that is the, the symptom of the disease of your unbelief. If you are living in an unrepentant lifestyle, unwilling to come to him, unwilling to turn to him, living a life free from the conviction of the Holy Spirit, that is the, the, the symptom of the disease you have that is unbelief. Those who have symptoms of bearing the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, those who have those things and are ever increasing the other attributes mentioned in 2 Peter chapter 1, these are the things that, not, that provide you where you go, now I have salvation because I'm producing these, but these are the things that are evidence of the faith that you have in Jesus Christ. And the fact is, is that when we sin against God, we mourn. We have the Holy Spirit that convicts the whole world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. James chapter 3 verse 2 includes himself. And mind you, James was probably fairly sanctified at that, at that point. Would you not agree? James himself includes himself that we all stumble in many ways. Jesus was very clear in Luke chapter 17 when he says that stumbling blocks are unavoidable. But I've always equated it this way, Right? And, and, and I only use it because the Bible uses it in 2 Peter chapter 2 about wallowing in the mire, right? If I, if a, if, I'll just say a bird poops on me, right? I don't, oh, that's okay, and rub it on my face, right? If I step in dog poop, right? I'm like, oh, that's fun. Let's keep doing that. No, I wash it off. I'm like, this is disgusting. I don't want anything to do with this right? I don't like laying it and, and just, just enjoy myself. That's sin. That's, that's not just stepping in dog poop. You're like sniffing it and stuff, right? It's gross. It's dirty. It's shameful. That's how we should be. We say, no, I want this off of me. I know I did it. I, I shouldn't have done that, right? It's the difference 
between a believer and a non-believer. It's the difference. It's saying, why would I do that, God? Help me to be stronger next time. Help me to grow and recognize the difference between Satan and the Holy Spirit. Because there's a big difference there. Because Satan will be the one whispering into your ear, do it. It's not that big a deal. It's just a little sin. It's not, it's not that big a deal. And then once you commit that sin, he will say, God will never accept you. You're condemned. You're never, you're never coming back to him. Give me a break. Why would he accept you? Right? Where I believe the Holy Spirit will convict you concerning that sin. Don't practice that. Don't walk in that. Don't get in that sin. And when you do, he will call you back to himself. Get back up. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's through his power and his strength. Jesus said, apart from me, I can do no thing. I can do nothing. And I think it's really interesting. There's a text in the Quran in chapter 5. Where it makes fun of Christians. You say you have a father. Allah has no, no children. It makes, fun of, uh, it makes fun of Christians and Jews who believe that God is our father. I believe it's uh, Surah 518. But one of the greatest things, they deny the Holy Spirit exists. In fact, I don't know what kind of understanding Muhammad even had about the Holy Spirit. In fact, he thought the Trinity was the Father, the Son, and Mother Mary. And when we think about the Holy Spirit... When I think of Romans, the eighth chapter, it is the Holy Spirit that cries out through us and tells us not only that we're saved and gives us that assurance that we are children of God, but it's the one that gives us unction to cry out, Abba, Father. And you think of an entire people group, an entire religious system that doesn't believe you can ever be a child of God. The best thing you could ever be is a slave. But I know what John 1, 12 says. To all those who believe, he gives the right, the authority to become a child of God. That's what my God does. So every time I reflect on these two belief systems, this thing gets stomped out, one, because it's not true. The whole thing. I don't actually believe anything I said about Muhammad tonight. There's some chapters I'll, I can't even get into because it'd be, on, uh, just read, especially chapter 33. But I, I won't get into that. But when it comes to Jesus, I can not only believe in him, but I can reflect on how good he is. And I think of 1 John. And this is, this is one of the greatest things. And this is why I, I probably quote 1 John more than most books. And one of the reasons is, is because you think about the very beginning, the first thing he's talking about, what we have seen, what we have touched with our own hands, right? Peter kind of goes through this as well, right? We didn't follow cleverly devised tales. I'm telling you the things that we saw. But with John, he's like, I saw, I touched. How can these people, these, I believe, docetists, which eventually became Gnostics, how could these people say that he's not flesh? What are they talking about? That denying that he comes in the flesh? This is ridiculous. But then not only is he talking about, I seen, I heard, this is the message we heard from him. But guess what? He is light. In him there's no darkness at all. Anyone who says that they walk with him and do not practice the way of, of righteousness, not walk in the light, they're a liar. The truth's not in them. They don't actually know him. First John chapter 2, I think it goes against perfectionism as well. His desire was to write that they may not sin, but when they do, they have an advocate in the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Chapter 3 gives us the details quite clearly who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. So we'll be able to see and make it evident, manifest, totally understand the difference between a child of God and a child of the devil. First John chapter 3. But then First John chapter 4. And I had planned on reading all through that, but I, I'm going to finish up here because I just think it's amazing. Starting at verse 7 all the way to 21. And in 1 John chapter 4, that's where we get that text, that beautiful text. It says it twice, but God is love. God is love. And how do we know that? Because he gave his only son for us. And one of the things, and, and I've done this a lot, um, sharing on the mission field or sharing with people or even, you know, at an at a FCA group or whatever, um, and I used to bring up my son, but he's a little crazy now. But, um, you know, I, I think about it and, and, and just hearken on Romans, the fifth chapter, uh, concerning Christ's death for us. And I think about this a lot, you know, because it says, while we were yet sinners, while we were yet criminals against God, he made laws and we broke them. While, he, while, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And I think about it because... For me, I love my children. I, I love them a whole lot. And if somebody came up to me and they said to me, hey, um, 
there's all these people over here, and the only way that we're going to be able to save them is if, is if your son's life is taken to save them. They, they need a transfusion. It's only from your son. It's the only way we could do it. Can you give them life? And, you know, I'd say to them, oh, man, that'd be really tough, but I, I can't give you my son. I, I just can't, you know. I, I don't love those people enough. I'm just being honest with you. I can't do it. And they go, and they, they give out the news, and then they come back, and they say, hey, um, I don't know if this helps, but all the people that we were asking your son to die for, they're actually all criminals. Um, you know, they all should probably be locked up. They've all done some pretty bad things. Will you give us your son? Like, yeah, right, man. Like, that doesn't help at all. All right, all right. He goes, goes away, and he comes back, and he's like, all right, one last try, okay? You know those criminals? All the things that they did, they, it was actually against you personally. Every one of the actions they stole from you, they lied. All of the things they did, they were always to harm you. They were, it was you that they were trying to harm. I'd be like, well, that didn't sweeten the pot. I gotta be honest with you. No, I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna not give you my son. But that's literally what happened. Except way worse. Every sin, as, even though you think about Psalm 51 with David, right? He, he says, even though he had Uriah the Hittite killed, he says, against you and you alone have I sinned. Ultimately, it's against God who we sin against. And then he says, guess what? It pleased, it says this in Isaiah 53. It pleased God to crush Jesus. All right, it doesn't say Jesus, but that's about Jesus. Read Isaiah 53. It pleased God to crush him. Not because he's a bad father, because he's a really good one. And because he's so good to us, he recognized, guess what? It pleased God to crush his only son because that was the only way, and Jesus talked about this in Gethsemane, let this cup pass if there was any other way. That was the only way by which man could be saved. The only possible way. And so guess what? We had a Jesus that took his only son. I mean, he was, his, he was the son. We have a father who took his only son and put him to death for us. For every sin that we committed, everything we did against him, and he did that. Muslims don't have that. Jehovah's Witnesses don't have that. Only those who love Jesus have that. And I believe that's the gospel, and I believe that's why we are given texts like Philippians 2, why we're given texts like Mark chapter 1, because Jesus is the Yahweh of the Old Testament. He's the same one that was there in Sodom and Gomorrah in chapter 19 when it says, Yahweh rained down fire from Yahweh who was on the earth. We see it over and over again, and we see that all of the texts of the Old Testament fulfilled in Jesus or going to be fulfilled in Jesus at his return. Amen? Let us stand.